is Ella Kate Marisi, and you are listening to More Than Child's Play with your host, my mommy, Lacey Marisi, and my Aunt Nicole Surgeon. They're authors, therapists, and most importantly, mommies. And man, can they talk. So sit back and relax and learn from their village. We hope you enjoy the show. Hi, everyone, and welcome to another episode of More Than Child's Play podcast. This is Lacey Marisi, pediatric speech-language pathologist, and I'm really excited today. I was able to invite Amy Graham to join us and talk about all things speech sound disorders with you all to help us as early intervention therapists in guiding these families and these children on the right track for the next steps when they transition over to the public school system. So welcome, Amy. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Thank you so much for your time. And again, your willingness to share what you know, your expertise in this area with all of us so that we can learn. Um, I just want to introduce you to the audience a little bit more formally. So Amy is a speech language pathologist with 23 years experience. She has worked in public schools, acute care, rehabilitation hospitals, an audiology clinic and private practice. She now has the privilege of serving children and their families from her home-based practice, Graham Speech Therapy. She treats a variety of speech language delays and disorders and has a particular interest and love for treating pediatric speech sound disorders, including childhood apraxia of speech, articulation delays disorders, and phonological delays and disorders. Amy has a passion for educating, supporting, and equipping SLPs by frequently posting practical therapy tips on her Instagram and Facebook accounts, developing materials such as the Graham Speech Therapy Oral Facial Exam and the Burem Speech Sound Cues Deck for Lateralization, and presenting to SLP groups on a variety of topics within the realm of speech sound disorders. She also has had the pleasure of being a guest on several SLP podcasts. Amy is a member of the American Speech Language Hearing Association. She holds her Colorado Speech Language Pathology license. She is prompt trained and is listed on the Apraxia Kids directory of SLPs with expertise in apraxia. So I have been following Amy on Instagram for, oh, well over a year, but you really, Amy, you share so much great information on Instagram, and I've learned so much just from following your account. You frequently post therapy videos, which is so great as a therapist to see you in action and see those techniques kind of being effective and how you're delivering those techniques. So that's so helpful. And you just share a lot of great information about evaluation and the treatment of speech sound disorders. Oh, thanks. I'm so glad to hear that. Um, yeah. yeah, I I didn't know what this Instagram account would turn into when I started it <laughs> just a couple of years ago. It wasn't even that long ago. Maybe I probably started it a while, but it kind of took off a couple of years ago. So yeah, I'm, I've really been encouraged by the feedback I've been getting from SLPs and parents. Yes. Yeah, exactly. Not just therapists, but families. Right. It's informative for them to see kind of, you know, how things are done and what to expect from their SLP um, exactly. who might be seeing their child. Yeah. And- yeah, and obviously this was an area of need within social media for our community because your account has done so well, and again, your your posts are so informative and helpful to to everyone. So, so thank you for taking the time to um, help all of us through those accounts that you have. So. As a, again, an early intervention therapist, you know, I always want to help families uh, uh, figure out the whys, why their kid isn't talking or why their kid's speech is so intelligible. And, and I only get those kiddos and their families until that age of three. Mm-hmm. So as I assist them in making that transition from the birth to three program, which is what EI is called in West Virginia, mm-hmm. over to the public school system, 
I like to prepare them again for what might be going on. If I can formally diagnose something, I always try to do that. Although sometimes I get a little bit leery because I don't ever want to misdiagnose something and, and it be incorrect down the road. But I feel to help the child be as successful as they can, can in that next step and for yeah. the family to be the most prepared and educated so that they can advocate for their child in that next step is just so critically important. Um, but again, you know, I, I interviewed Laura Smith a couple months ago and we talked about those early signs to look for for childhood apraxia of speech. So we now have that research to kind of help us for those kiddos that are under two that are exhibiting these seven different characteristics then right. kind of we and get, so you know, I, th I mean, it's amazing research that we're able to kind of go back and look at these videos of these kids who were later identified as having apraxia. Yeah. It's fascinating. And it's so helpful. I think even if we're not comfortable providing, uh, you know, an actual diagnosis, we can at least work, have a working diagnosis. Yes. And even if we suspect it might be apraxia, even if we're not, you know, ready to put that label um, on it yet, but the fact that we can kind of tailor the way we do therapy, I mean, it's great information. Absolutely. And it's so important because all of these different speech sound disorders, which is what apraxia falls under, articulation, phonological disorders, all of them have a unique approach that will be most effective. So that, again, is another critical reason for trying to identify what might be going on or what definitely is going on before these kiddos pass on to the next stage. Yeah. So, so kind of explain to us, if you will. So again, speech sound disorders is an umbrella term. So right. what all fa falls under that term? Basically, it is an umbrella term that, to kind of describe a multi multitude of issues that kids may have that impact their ability to produce and use speech sounds. So these kind of range all the way from those minor, what we would consider like a mild deficit of an articulation deficit, where it's like the child just has trouble with one, two, maybe three sounds from a motoric standpoint. These are the kids who have a lisp or who have residual sound errors on maybe the R sound or the TH sound. And they're just trying, it's just one or two sounds and it doesn't really reduce their speech intelligibility too much, mm -hmm. um, but it does make them sound a little bit different. And, then we have kind of the next, it's a spectrum basically. So that's kind of that mild. And then we have the kids who have phonological deficits where it's not necessarily a motoric aspect of unable to produce a sound, but it's the difficulty that they have using those sounds in the context of language. Um, so it's instead of a phonetic issue, it's a, a phonemic issue, a phonological issue. And they have trouble with the rules of how to use these particular sounds. And sometimes those kids also have trouble making it like just even producing a sound like K's and G's, it might be tricky, but the issue, the underlying issue is not necessarily a, a motor deficit. Mm -hmm. And then down the spectrum is kind of more difficulty with motor planning or there's uh, motor speech disorders. So motor planning would be apraxia, motor execution, more like dysarthria. And then we've got those kids who just have kind of a mix of one, two or three of those, which is not uncommon. And so I think if we can kind of do a, a really thorough evaluation that can help us make this differential diagnosis to where we can figure out, okay, what's contributing the most, even if it is a mixed speech sound disorder. Mm -hmm. And there are characteristics of two or more of those types of issues. Um, it can help us determine what is impacting the child's intelligibility the most so that we can target that and then be more effective in our therapy. Yes. And what would you say 
I know this can be a bit subjective in our SLP world, but what would you say would be that intelligibility score for a kid at the age of three? How much of their speech should any listener, familiar or unfamiliar, be able to understand? So at the age of three, um, what we know is that about 75% of what that child says should be understood by an unfamiliar listener. So not mom, not sister, not dad or grandma. It's somebody who is not familiar with the way that they that child speaks. But at about three years old, we want about 75% of what that child says to be understood. Yes, and I think it's so important that we say, un, well, that we make it clear that unfamiliar right. listener, because <laughs> as familiar listeners, whether it's me as the therapist that sees the kiddo weekly or the parent that's with them every day, you get used to those um, errors and that pattern of errors that they have. So you, and, and within context, you can understand what they're meaning. So again, that unfamiliar listener, somebody who's not, you know, familiar with the child, doesn't know all those sound patterns of errors and, and exactly. that person should understand 75%. So that's important to, to keep in mind. So, you know, again, working with little ones, infants and toddlers approaching age three, before we can really look at all these different diagnoses under that umbrella of speech sound disorders, do they need to have a particular amount of expressive language? Like, should they be speaking in phrases or should they have at least 200 words in their vocabulary? Like, is there a number right. we're looking for there? I don't know necessarily if it's a number, but I would say this is why I tend to only work with my kids at about age three, because up until age three, there are many phonological errors that are super typical, <laughs> that yeah. it's not considered out of the realm of normal um, for a two and a half year old to be producing. So we kind of, the focus, as you know, early intervention, the focus is so much on language, right? Because you want, you just want the labeling and the putting the words together and, and receptive language and following directions and answering questions appropriately. That's where um, and rightly so, the focus should be on children that are that are not either understood very well or just not talking a lot. And then by the time, if that's going well, by the time they get to about three, they should have enough speech to where they can at least um, look at a single word Arctic test, right? Like the Goldman Fristo or the Deep, or just even be able to kind of analyze a speech sample just from talking with you, if you record it and you can just analyze their speech to where you can start to see, okay, I'm, I'm hearing that there are some consistent errors going on. Um, and I know you've already talked about apraxia, but there are, cause sometimes kids at that age, if they don't have a lot of speech, we can't really differentially diagnose a speech sound disorder necessarily. But if they do have some of those um, red flags that I know Laura talked about um, on a previous episode that, well, you can at least tailor your therapy to address um, their speech deficits from more, more of a motoric standpoint. Yes. Uh, so now I forgot what your question was. Okay. <laughs> so I have another one to follow up. Okay. So I often will say to families, you know, because I'm seeing kiddos because they're typically not talking yet. They're delayed with that language, right. um, whether, you know, sometimes receptive and expressive. But I have some parents who are like, you know, the kid has 15, 20 words in their vocab. And they're like, he's not saying his R's, his R's are just not coming out or his L's or W's, or he says no ending cons, you know, no sounds at the end of words. So I always say to parents, you know, we give kiddos that at least that first three years to kind of yeah. start working out 
how to get their speech to sound more like that adult model that we're that we're providing for them every day. And I talk to them about those phonological processing errors that are typical patterns of errors that we see in kids as they're developing their speech. So yeah, I talk to them about that, again, that window of three years. And then too, I feel like when kiddos aren't getting those first words out until 18 months, 24 months, their window's gotten smaller to work those things out, you know, those uh, typical errors. So sometimes giving them that little bit of time so that they can gain more language, have more practice with all those sounds, putting them into words, into phrases, into sentences. Exactly. They, we owe them that, right? That little yeah. bit of extra time. I get questions from parents all the time on Instagram messaging me like, my 20 month old is doing this, my 24 month old, my, you know, my 28 month old. And I, and most of what I do is just kind of encourage them if they're at all concerned, seek out early intervention services. Absolutely. But it, when it comes to speech sounds, that's not necessarily my first concern at that age, right? It's something that we look at once we hear more language coming out, more vocabulary that once they're starting to combine more words together. Yes, absolutely. And I had, we did a previous episode with Carrie Ebert and we were talking about parent coaching. And I don't know if we talked about this, maybe it was a time she had a Facebook live with Laura, but they talked about an early intervention. We're working on attention, motivation, yes. and imitation, right? Those are the three big things. So we're not jumping on you know, the wagon too soon of working on individual sounds or looking at anything too early because we really have to work on those three skills, attention, imitation, and motivation, so that then kids are ready at age three to yes. participate in therapy that might be necessary for whatever's going on speech sound wise. Yes, because speech sound disorders therapy is you have to have those requisite skills in order to really be successful for some of the approaches that we're going to use if a child has a phonological disorder or apraxia for that matter, or, right. you know, even articulation deficits, which I would, you know, typically address a little bit later, but those have to be in place. They really do. Those are such important foundational skills. Um, that definitely need to be in place before um, you even start thinking about direct therapy for a speech sound disorder. Yes, absolutely. Okay. All right. So let's talk a little bit about evaluation. You know, sometimes I'm able to evaluate a kid right before they, they transition over the school system because we evaluate annually in early intervention. But sometimes that eval has been almost a year ago. So it isn't a, a current eval for the receiving evaluative SLP. Mm -hmm. But if I have that opportunity to give a good eval, right, you know, right before the third birthday, yeah. tell me what I should be looking for. I know your oral mech exam is something that you talk a lot about. Talk to us about that because I, I admit I don't look in the mouth near as much as I should <laughs> to figure that out. So. Well, it's hard when they're little, right? It's, it's not always easy under a three. Even when I have some of my kids that are three and four, sometimes it's hard to get all the information. But what we're really doing for when we administer an oral facial or oral mech, oral peripheral, whatever you call it, um, we're looking to either identify and or rule out any underlying structural issues that there may be that could, could be contributing or functional issues. And so we're looking at all the articulators and how they're moving and what the structure is. And it, but we're looking at those um, those differences that they that may present themselves in an oral facial exam within the context of what their specific speech errors are. Because sometimes I'll get a question like, oh my gosh, their tonsils are huge. They're four years old. Um, and they, but they have phonological 
patterns, right? And so my, my first question is, so do you think the large tonsils are impacting their, their specific speech errors? Like they're gliding, they're stopping, like all these phonological error yeah. patterns. And usually if that's the case, the answer is no, but it's something to always note because there could be other things that you may need to ask the parents about, like, are they snoring at night? Do they have trouble sleeping? Are there up, um, upper airway issues? things like that, that could down the road impact that child, either speech wise, or just, you know, from a quality of life issue, right? Sometimes we, as SLPs, when we're looking in that mouth, sometimes we're the first ones to notice some of those things that, that could be good referrals back to the pediatrician, right? Um, because it's not normal to snore <laughs> as a child. That's not a normal thing. It's not normal to mouth breathe, um, all of these things. And some of, um, so those are kinds of some of the things that can um, present themselves when you administer an oral facial exam. But that's definitely one of the things that I always, as a specialist who specializes in speech sound disorders, it's an aspect of my evaluation that I always try, try my best at least to get all the information that, that I can from that. So that's kind of step number one. And you have on your website an I do. exam. I do. I have, so I, I actually developed this several years ago for myself because I wanted an easy to administer oral mech exam and I couldn't find one. And I wanted just a, a super, I wanted a thorough, very thorough, but a checklist style that I could just check like with the normal limits or atypical. And then you could write briefly what you saw. And so that's what I developed. And it's got uh, three page, uh, three pages, I believe. I don't have it in front of me um, of just checklist style. You're looking at face, jaw, tongue, lips, dentition, palate, velum, um, didocokinetic rates. And then, but you can administer it fairly quickly. And then I've got a couple pages that go with it to kind of walk the SLP through how to interpret what you're seeing and when you may need to make a referral maybe to an ENT or a craniofacial team or um, the pediatrician or a myofunctional therapist. So right. that's kind of why, why I developed it was for myself. And then I found out that through Instagram, that wonderful <laughs> platform that we have where SLPs connect, that a lot of SLPs were kind of looking for the same thing. So I sell it on my website. I sell it on Holland Healthcare in a bundle with the throat scope, which is a fantastic tool if you need um, to get a, a good oral facial exam with a younger kid, it's a light up tongue depressor that makes it so much easier. And it looks like a fairy wand or a lightsaber. And it's not nearly as scary as putting a wooden tongue depressor in their face. <laughs> so that's great. That's really a really great tool to use too, if you're trying to get an oral facial exam. Awesome. Good. So that's on your website and your website, what's the, your website address? Graham speech, Graham, like the cracker, gramspeechtherapy.com is my website and you can find all my products on there. Okay. Awesome. All right. Yeah. So back so evaluation, we're starting with yep. the oral mech exam. And so what would be next? What would you recommend next? So I would say even before the oral mech exam, I always try to get a thorough case history and I have a specific speech sound disorder specific case history form, because okay. there are some things that can alert you and can help you with differential diagnosis. So on, we look at family history, um, always want to make sure that child has had a hearing screening, especially if there's history of, I mean, early intervention services, right? I'm sure that's like, are there history of ear infections, chronic otitis media, that kind of thing. So it's something that we always want to um, make sure that that child has at least had a screening um, 
Yes. And then I, we have birth history. Sorry, were you going to say something? That's okay. I was just going to say, oftentimes parents will report the kiddo past newborn, their newborn hearing yes. screening. So they're like, oh, we're not concerned about hearing, you know, they pass their newborn hearing screening. But anytime there's a, a language delay concern yes. with speech, I still really strongly encourage that hearing evaluation because as the child gets older, they're able to look at hearing in a different way and, and a more thorough way. So yeah, I always support that. And I think most SLPs do because we know that connection of hearing and speech is so closely related. It and, is, and it is. And that's so important too, because I think it, it is a common thing when you ask the parent, has their hearing been screened? And if they think, well, the newborn screening, absolutely they're good, yes. but they don't realize, right? There are yes. some other things that can happen Mm -hmm. uh, that can impair that child's hearing that needs to be checked out for sure. Um, I get a, a good birth history, you know, especially things, if it was a traumatic birth or pregnancy, you know, these are different in pieces of information that can kind of inform um, your diagnosis. Medical history, there are some really interesting things that I look at that can kind of help me decide if there's maybe especially for my older kids, but if there are any myofunctional deficits that I need to either address or refer to a specialist for like um, difficulty sleeping, snoring, breathing difficulties, large tonsils, you know, thumb sucking, um, those kinds of things. And then feeding and eating history as well. Mm -hmm. Do they have, are they messy eaters? Do they, you know, do they have trouble moving that tongue around in their mouth during their feeding? That doesn't always necessarily mean that that's a contributor to their speech disorder, but you want to get a full picture of this child in front of you. So that's always something that I get to. And then obviously developmental history, um, these kinds of things, like, are they overall delayed in all of their motor skills, fine motor, gross motor, um, and then academic and educational history. Do they have trouble learning to read or is, are those early phonological awareness skills emerging, those kinds of things, because we know that children with speech sound disorders are at much greater risk for having difficulty learning to read. So it's something that we kind of need to keep our finger on the pulse of as well. So yeah, that I would say definitely, I always get my, try to get my case history beforehand, because yes. sometimes that can also help me narrow um, my assessment. And because if I see some red flags for maybe apraxia, because I have those red flags listed in there, like was, did your child babble at a certain age where they quiet as an infant. Mm -hmm. And if I'm suspecting apraxia, those red flags can help alert me to that too in the, in the, um, right. the case history. So I always try to get that first if I can. Um, and then I'm my kind of my next step, really my first thing I probably do for most kids that I find is not as um, it's just easier to obtain is the single word Arctic test, because if you have really shy ones, especially like if they're just three and they're transitioning over and they don't know you very well, I, I get that single word Arctic test first. And right now I'm using, um, the deep, which is the diagnostic, oh gosh, now I can't remember diagnostic evaluation of articulation and phonology. I think <laughs> that's what I mean. That sounds right. Yeah. Um, so that's what I'm using uh, right now. And it's, you know, they're fun pictures. Kids can name those, especially if they're kind of shy. Mm -hmm. um, so I usually start with that. Um, and then if I can, I try to get a, um, a phonological awareness assessed or at least screened um, mm -hmm. just to see are those, do they hear syllables? Do they hear separate words in, in sentences? You know, do they understand the distinctive, um, the distinction that this is the first sound in the word, this is the last sound in the word. Do they understand that? Can they manipulate that? 
Um, and of course that differs by different ages of kids, but I, I try to get kind of a baseline for where they, where they are. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I always try to get a connected speech sample as well. So we, we play because sometimes things will show up more during connected speech than they will in a single word articulation test. So even if it's pretty straightforward and you, you're like, yep, this kid has these three phonological patterns and let's just move on. I still get a speech sample because I want to see is the, are these errors evident in their spontaneous speech or are they starting to emerge or, you know, are the, are the patterns starting to disappear? Um, so it can give you really good information. And then I always try to get now to give to caregivers or teachers or whoever's bringing the child to me an intelligibility and context scale, which is a fantastic, easy to administer. Um, It's just kind of where the caregiver identifies, I think it's a scale from one to five maybe, of how much do different people in this child's life understand what they say all the time, sometimes, rarely. (laughs) And and it kind of gives you a really good idea of their intelligibility. Um, If you don't have the time to analyze every, you know, percent consonant, correct, you know, to kind of, uh, it it gives you really, really good information. So I always try to get that as well. And that looks at different listeners, like uh, it does. So the, you can, you can give this scale to whoever, um, you know, if you're in the schools or if you, if you don't have access, when I was in the schools, I'd always didn't have access to parents <laughs> as much yeah. as I would like. And yeah. so I would give it to the teachers or the tutors that were in the classroom or whoever was with the child the most and ask, you know, you could ask them to rate it, but yeah, it basically, um, asks them and I'm trying to pull it up right now if I can, but it, it actually comes in many, many different languages, which is really nice. Oh, <laughs> uh, so, you know, if you have a family, um, a multilingual, bilingual family um, that, de- or somebody that just doesn't speak English, you can hand this to them too. So it asks them how much they understand their child, immediate family members, extended family members, child's friends, acquaintances, teachers, and strangers. And so it really gives you a great idea as far as you know, yep, mom understands them really well, but strangers have no idea what they're saying. So they might get score a one for never. So it just gives you, um, a, what I like to do too, is maybe after several months of therapy, readminister that, ask the parent to fill it out again. And then you can start to see that, oh my gosh, you know what? Strangers do sometimes now understand them or mostly or usually. And so you can see the improvements too and monitor their improvements with this too. And that tool would be really good in kind of, if you have a parent who really isn't able to appreciate how unintelligible their child's speech is, if they have to right. stop and think about it, oh, wait, when the neighbor sees him, they don't yes. understand anything I have to interpret. Yes. Or or a parent who maybe isn't able to yet appreciate the progress the child is making after a few months of therapy, giving them that little checklist again, or that, you know, that form to fill out might then exactly. help them feel more. And it's right. so quick and easy, but it's just light bulbs turn off, you know, or yeah. turn on rather right. when they fill this out. Exactly. Right. Yeah. I like that. Okay, good. All right. So I want you to talk for a minute. So, um, again, I learned this from following you and some other people on Instagram, the importance of a dynamic assessment. Yes. Talk about what that means and why that's so important when we assess these kids. Absolutely. So I think I know when I was in graduate school and as a new clinician, and when you're doing language assessments, I just remember being like, don't give the child any hints. They said was right or wrong. You have to just, uh okay, nice 
job and, you know, turn the page. And, but dynamic assessment is so very different, especially with speech sound disorders, because it gives you so much information, so much more information. Mm-hmm. So when you're administering, for example, your single word articulation test, and maybe the word is, gosh, pig, right? And they say, bit instead of pig, you don't just move on. You mark that, that, yep, okay, it sounded like they voiced the initial consonant and they dropped the final consonant, but then ask them again, now watch how I say it, watch me, I'm going to say a quiet sound at the beginning, pig, and maybe say it a little bit slower and see if that helps that child be more accurate. Can they get it? That is very informative when you're planning your therapy, Um, because if a child is stimulable, for particular sounds or particular sounds in different positions of words that can help you identify, like if you're going to use the cycles approach and they have a bunch of phonological patterns, you're only going to address sounds that the child is stimulable for. So that right there gives you the information that, yep. Okay. If I gave them some cues and some prompts and help some visuals, they were able to be accurate. That's informative, right? So that's what we mean by dynamic assessment. You jot down, I take down what they said spontaneously, I transcribe it and I go back and I analyze that, but then I go back and I see, okay, now let's try this sound, watch how I do it. And you're trying to give them all the cues and prompts to see if they can produce something correctly. And also if you suspect apraxia, it's a great way to screen for one of the key characteristics, which is inconsistent production upon repeated productions of the same word. And so if it's in, if you suspect apraxia and they say pih or, or bih, maybe for pig, mm-hmm. and you say, you know what, say that one more time for me. So listen to me, pig. And maybe they say ba the next time. And then they say it, and then they voice the different consonant and then they add a schwa and they're doing it differently. There's something that's different. Maybe the vowel is distorted across, you know, four or five trials. Then you're thinking, oop, okay, I am going to really need to probe more and give a dynamic motor speech assessment, which just does that, Mm -hmm. um, but just a little bit more in depth to give you a a better picture of whether or not they have apraxia of speech. So yeah, that's what we mean by dynamic. Gotcha. So we're allowed to break the rules in a dynamic. Yes, break the rules. (laughs) When I was in grad school, it was the same thing. You read the question just the way it's written. Don't get any clues. Don't lead them on in any way. Yes. So you know those kids that look at you like, did I get it right or wrong? And you're just like, oh, I can't tell you. (laughs) I want to help you, but not yet. Therapy, I can help you. Right. I'll help you next week. (laughs) Yeah, that's right. Okay. So Okay. So we've got a good idea of our evaluation process, what to look at, you know, what to consider when looking at these young kiddos again, before hopefully transitioning them over to um, public school services. But explain to us why, why identifying or diagnosing these speech sound disorders early is important and why really figuring out what it is as soon as we can is important. Because it will inform the type of therapy that you're going to do. Because I think as SLPs, we're, I, I see this as a tendency in the profession to treat all speech sound disorders the same. Mm-hmm. We identify the sounds they don't have, and then we drill those sounds in different positions of words, and then we put those types of words in phrases and then sentences. And it, that is a very, I'm, I'm using air quotes, <laughs> articulation Uh, type of treatment where we're looking at the sound at a phonetic level, Mm -hmm. which if the child has a phonological deficit and they have 
phonological error patterns that are pervasive. That is going to be a very inefficient way to treat that child. <laughs> we need to use a phonological approach where you're not just addressing the production of a sound, but you're addressing their understanding and use of it. So I have kids that like if, if they're deleting a final consonant, it's not that they can't say the P sound. They're just not understanding that this word has a sound. It has a final consonant sound. They don't get that yet. And so treatment is very different. And so there are different treatment approaches, highly evidence-based approaches like minimal pairs, like multiple oppositions, like cycles approach that we should be using instead of one of those traditional articulation approaches. And again, I know it's not, we're not getting really into apraxia, but aprax, you know, if we can differentiate apraxia or what we suspect might be apraxia, that's a completely different approach where we have to, it's not about the sound, it's about the movement from sound to sound and syllable to syllable, fluidly and prosodically that we have to address, which requires a completely different type of intervention that is not phonological, but is motor-based, like dynamic temporal and tactile cueing, like um, Nuffield, like all of the other evidence-based approaches for apraxia using the principles of motor learning. So that in a nutshell, is why it's important to differentially diagnose within that umbrella mm -hmm. uh, and determine to what degree, which, what category kind of is impacting the child's intelligibility the most, mm -hmm. um, because we need to address that so that we can be more efficient in our therapy. Right, right. And so this might be too um, general of a question to ask, but if, if, a, if a, an SLP just gives an ARTIC test, like the Goldman Fristo, mm -hmm. and there's a whole bunch of errors, right? what should that indicate? <laughs> it, you know what? It comes down to analysis. And so it, I will say it takes time. <laughs> it takes a little bit time, uh, uh, more time than you're used to as just, as opposed to just kind of marking a, a you know, little line through it if it's an omission versus a substitution. So I would say as a specialist for speech sound disorders, it's not super helpful just to list a whole bunch of sounds that the child doesn't have mm -hmm. or just list like the 25 substitutions that they have, right? right. <laughs> like if, they're, yeah. if they're substituting a whole bunch of, of consonants, that tells me that we need to go back and let's look at each one of those words and instead of just the phonetic substitution, what's really going on with that word? Mm -hmm. So like if, for example, they, let's take that word pig again, right? If they're saying bih, it's not that they don't have the G sound maybe, it's that they're omitting a final consonant. There's a pattern there, final consonant deletion. And then the first one, it's not that they, maybe they don't have P, I don't know that, but what is the pattern that's going on there? That would be pre-vocalic voicing. So it's, I think going through each of those words and spending a little bit more time than maybe we're used to on analysis of those specific you know, utterances of that child will completely help you down the road when you're determining what kind of approach you should be using. So I think spending a little extra time and going through and reviewing, okay, what are these phonological patterns and understanding things like, um, phoneme collapse, like maybe, man, you know what, when I look at everything, this child uses W for like 15 different sounds. And so if you can figure out the pattern and not every pattern has to have a, a specific name, right? right? You can just be like, wow, this, 
this child tends to do this, right? You can kind of see it as if you kind of look at, at the protocols and see what's happening and just identify the pattern because yeah. that, like I said, that will help you. If I have a child with phoneme collapse, I gravitate towards a multiple oppositions therapy. Um, If I have a child who has a bunch of really consistent phonological patterns and highly unintelligible, I kind of gravitate towards cycles. So it really can, that spending extra time on analysis will help you in the long run. Yeah. Just drive your therapy and and specific for what's going on and help the child to be more successful quickly. quickly. Yeah. So, um, Oh shoot. I lost my train. Oh, so, okay. Back to the Goldman Fristo. It's, it's yeah. not, I years ago worked in the public school system and that's what we used in the system I worked in, but how much weight should we put in that standard score that we get from that, our tick test now, now we know, you know, early intervention program has eligibility criteria, public sure. school system to receive services, there's eligibility criteria. So we, if we know this child needs help, we have to get an, a hard number from somewhere to help make the child eligible. But that RTIC standard score, you know, how much weight do we put in that? Can it help us with eligibility or can we look somewhere else for a score to help us with eligibility? You know, it, that is probably one of the most common questions I get from school-based SLPs. And I was one, but I haven't been one for a while. And I have noticed too, when I was working in districts sometimes, because I worked in a number of districts, it varied within, even within from state to state. And then it varies within district to district as far as how they determine eligibility. Do they need a standard score for this? Or can you use a criterion reference score? So I think understanding that is helpful, but as far as... I would say I give very, as a private practitioner, I give very little weight to a standard score. For me, those single word articulation tests give me something to analyze and helps me see what their errors are. And what I give probably the most weight to is intelligibility. Mm -hmm. So if I have a child, I'll give you an example. Let's say I have an older child who is maybe, you know, six or seven, and they just bombed the Goldman Fristo because the Goldman Fristo is heavily weighted with R sounds, right? And they're, they only have one error and it's an R error, but they, and so the poor parent sees this terrible standard score or percentile rank. And they're like, oh my gosh, my child is like, can they not speak? And so I have to explain to them, like, this is why it's this one error. I would still consider that a mild speech sound disorder because they have this one sound error. It just appears a whole bunch of times. Mm -hmm. Um, But you also might have a child who has a lot of phonological patterns that may may not give them a different score or it might give them kind of an inflated score because of their age. Mm -hmm. But if their intelligibility is below a certain point, like if they're three years old and they're not 75% intelligible, 80-ish percent intelligible, Um, I'm still going to try to qualify that child if I'm working somewhere and find a way to do it because that, and especially if maybe there's a history of, um, learning, learning disabilities or history of speech issues and the child, when you do that dynamic assessment, when you see if you can get them to be stimulable, they're not. Those are some indicators that tell me that, ooh, this isn't just about a standard score. This gives me a better picture that this child right here needs therapy than maybe a child who, if you do the dynamic portion, right, and you're, you're having them, you're giving them cues and prompts and they're, they're, oh, they're catching on. They're getting pretty accurate. Then maybe that's the kid that you can wait a little bit on. 
So I think standard scores, they can be helpful for eligibility, <laughs> but they certainly should not be the only thing we're looking at. It should be a part of the whole. Right. And I will say it's not been very often, but in early intervention, I've had a few kids in the past that receptive language skills are good. Expressively, they've got the language, but they're so hard to understand. And usually under the age of three, I don't administer an RTIC test, but I can use that intelligibility rating to, yes. to get that 25% delay that I need to make them eligible for speech services because it's so important, you know, yes. yeah, maybe they're distorting sounds that, that developmentally are appropriate for them, appropriate for them to not have quite yet, but it's impacting right. how we can understand them so much. They need the help now rather than waiting. So on that note, I want you to speak a little bit about, so there is an age of acquisition for sounds. There's a, <laughs> you know, there's a recommended at this age, they should be saying all these sounds at this age, they should be saying all these sounds. Right. And you know, as SLPs, I think we, we do reference that a lot, but how much weight do you put in that? And parents certainly appreciate kind of knowing what to expect at each age. But if you have a kiddo come in again, who's really hard to understand, but it's all, they're young and there's all, all older sounds. Do you wait or what do you do? Well, here there, there's kind of two aspects of this. So for one, um, if you remember that McLeod and Crow article that came out in 2018 talking and everybody was thinking these were new norms that they were coming out with, right? Yes. They were not new norms. <laughs> they just kind of leveled the playing field with all the data that has ever been out there. And they, they kind of made all things equal. And so what they were looking at was the average age at which kids learn to produce English consonants mm -hmm. um, correctly. And it freaked everybody out because I, like a lot of people, I was looking at the bar graphs, right? <laughs> Those bar graphs where you're like, here's where it starts, here's where it ends. Maybe um, it starts, the bar graph starts at two years old for this sound, but it doesn't end till like six years old. Mm -hmm. But so some people took that to mean that this is a, this whole range from two to six is a normal range of when kids can acquire a sound which yeah. was never how that those were meant to be read, right? It was basically that lower end is when 50% of those kids are, or half the kids are really, that's the average age at which they acquire the sounds. So we're looking at it a little bit better, mm -hmm. I would say now. Um, and so that's why, you know, by the time a child is six, they should really have all their sounds <laughs> because yeah. that, and that's really the age, um, which is good in that it, it's kind of helping us get to these kids a little bit earlier. Um, but I know it's freaking um, people out in the schools because they're like, what's my caseload going to look like? This is insane. Yes. Um, so I know there's kind of like two ways to look at it. But what I tell parents is, and again, I, I go back to intelligibility so much. So I will tell them like, okay, I get it. You're, you know, you may have a, a, a four-year-old who they don't have L or it's, you know, they're kind of gliding their L sound a little bit and that's all they've got, I, you know? So I can, you can kind of help understand like, are, are they understandable at all? Like even a child who is four, we expect about a hundred percent eligibility, right? Even to a stranger. Now that might mean they're still gliding R's and L's mm -hmm. and that might be okay. 
but I still always kind of probe to see if that child is stimulable. Again, going back to that dynamic assessment, it's super informative as far as um, prognosis. Like if I can get and maybe I won't address it directly in therapy, but if I can get that four-year-old to like, give me a good, err, you know, let's make that growling sound that tells me that, oh my gosh, great. I think that might likely emerge on its own. So, but if they can't, if they're struggling, you know, then maybe you can kind of keep that on the back burner and say, okay, maybe down the road, we may have to address this if it doesn't emerge on its own. Right. And it's important. And you know, the intelligibility of speech, and I see this in some of my kiddos in EI when they, when they don't have a lot of expressive language. And then as they get older, once they get the language and speech, if it's hard to understand them, it starts to imp- impact social and emotional development. And, you know, when their friends on the playground can't understand them or when they don't have the words to talk to their friends on the playground, you know, both areas. So that, I think that's another reason why it's important for us to consider that measure of intelligibility, no matter what the age of the child, or no matter what sounds they do or don't have that are developmentally appropriate. Um, right. you know. And I would even consider things like, can they say their own name? Does their own name have a sound that maybe it's, maybe you think of it as a later developing sound, but if they, you know, if they are struggling um, socially because they can't say their own name or they can't, you know, tell their friend's name or they can't say their age or they, you know what I mean? Like we yeah. have to, there's so many variables that we need to take into consideration as far as, um, eligibility mm-hmm. rather than just a standard score or, you know, or just one aspect of the assessment. Right. Cause not every kid's going to fit into that neat little description no. of what makes them eligible or not eligible for services. So exactly. And another thing too, like I consider the type of error. So, you know, we expect, um, that kids are going to have S by the age of five, but does that mean the error on the articulation test? Was it a lisp? Or was it a stopping error or was it a cluster, you know, an S cluster reduction? Like why did they score um, low on because of their S error? What type of error was it? If it was phonological, then okay, we need to get to those. But if it's a list, you maybe might, you can wait a little bit longer, right? Right. So, it, you know, it's, it's kind of, it, it's so much more than just, they don't have the sound. Right. But a lateral list, we, we never oh, wait on that. Yeah. We never wait on that. Right. Let me, let me hop on my bandwagon for a minute. Right Right ahead. (laughs) Yes. One of my favorite things to treat a lateral lisp. It's never developmental kids. I I don't think I've ever known a kid to kind of grow out of it. Um, Sometimes kids need less cues and they can catch on quicker, but it is not developmental. So if you can get to those early, get to those early, because the longer a child um, lives with a lateral lisp, the more habituated that motor pattern becomes comes in the more difficult it is to remediate. So yes, I try to get to those as early as possible. And I just want to say how unique you are when you started that, um, that little segment with one of your favorite things to treat is a lateral list. <laughs> Amy, you are one I of know. a kind. <laughs> I know. You know what? Good. Good. It's so funny. I think it's because I started, my first client was my sister oh. <laughs> had a lateral lisp. And when I was in graduate school, she had received therapy for a speech sound disorder. She had a lot of phonological um, errors when she was little. And 
she had this residual lateral lisp on SH and CH. And as an adult, it just bugged the heck out of her. Like she, there were words she would avoid. She, yeah. and so I was, I think I was either in graduate school or I just graduated. I can't remember, but she asked me, she's like, can you help me fix this? And I literally, I remember thinking, well, yeah, I think so. And so I just was trying to describe to her, well, you have to do this with your tongue. And, and it was, you know, as an adult, it's so easy to say, the sides of your tongue have to be up against the inside of your teeth. So the airflow can go down the middle of your tongue. And so like, if you do the T sound, t -t -t -t, feel where your sides of your tongue are, that's mm -hmm. where it has to be for the S or the SH sound or the CH sound. And she just was like, are you kidding me? That's it. And she got it in five, like not even five minutes. She's like, that's, that's how I'm supposed to say it. Yes. That's awesome. <laughs> and so she was amazing. She um, generalized that super fast because she was very motivated. Mm -hmm. um, but so for my younger kids, I use a very similar technique. And I have, I think you mentioned at the beginning, the Bjorn speech sound cues for lateralization. Mm -hmm. um, we have new picture cues to cue the child from a phonetic standpoint, from a sound that they can do correctly. So if they can do T, I, a really crisp T, then we can almost always get them to do a really great S. And so, but we're using picture cues. And so I'm not having to explain to a four-year-old, now keep the sides of your tongue inside. You know, you can't do that with the preschooler. No, right. <laughs> Even young hard. grade school kids. This, that um, ba program basically just helps do that. And I've had a really high degree of success with it. Awesome. And I love, cause I watched a few, again, videos, treatment videos that you've put on Instagram, how when you have a kid with a lisp, you don't work on that old S sound, that old snake sound or whatever. You you start with a whole new sound. So it kind of just resets the kid because those those um, error pattern, the way that they're producing it, it, it becomes habituated and, and it's hard oh, to change wait. it. Yeah. Every, so every time they see the S, the letter S, or every time we say snake sound or whatever, their tongue just can't help but drop the lateral borders. It just, they just can't help it because that's what they associate that motor plan, that motor pattern with that sound. And so that's what I tell them first thing. Even my older kids, I've got 12, 13, 14 year olds. I'm like, you know what? We're not gonna, I'm not gonna fix your S. We're not gonna work on S anymore. We're just gonna create a new sound and we're gonna call it this. And it's just like, oh, okay. And it just frees them. They don't have any of these you know, preconceived ha habits that they they have to try to do this to their tongue. If I can get them to do T, 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 t we've got it. And especially if it's an older kiddo um, who has been through therapy and not had success in remediating that, that lisping, you know, yeah. they're probably like dreading, here we go again, one more thing oh, to try to help me. me. And it's, you know, and these kids, these are bright with it kids that are like, yeah, what are you going to do? You're going to do the same thing the last therapist did. And that didn't help me at all. Yes. Uh, but when you tell them like, yeah, forget everything you learned. We're just going to start from scratch and do something new. You see the sigh of relief on their face. Like, oh, yeah. really? Oh, good. Because <laughs> What we did for the last four years did not help at all. Right. So they're, yeah, so thankful for that approach, yes. I'm sure. And one thing that you mentioned earlier that I'm just interested in personally, my, um, I have a child with dyslexia and he never had speech therapy, but you mentioned, you know, these kiddos, when we, when we um, assess them, evaluate them early and we start looking at the, the phonemic awareness you mentioned as a piece of your evaluation process. I'm curious to dig up and see if there's any research with those kids that are identified. And if that is an indicator of you know, difficulty with just, you know, learning to read phonemic, you know, phonemic awareness difficulties Absolutely. are a, a characteristic of dyslexia early Absolutely. on. So 
the writing and the sound, the segmentation and sound manipulation is difficult for those kids early. Exactly. Like what we talked about eligibility, right? We need to be taking that into consideration too, because even kids with mild speech sound disorders, right. That are, that maybe just a lisp or an R error, they've also are at greater risk for, for these types of issues too, which is why we should be looking at those, you know, phonemic phonological awareness skills, because if we can address those earlier, that's going to help those kids for sure. Absolutely. And share that information with teachers or even if it's a preschool teacher, if certainly like look out for this, really hammer hammer these skills home with this child, give parents ideas on how to help, help um, encourage those types of skills at home too. You know, we can kind of get ahead of it. And instead of waiting till that child is so far behind that we're playing catch up. Yeah, absolutely. Some of these earlier signs, we can catch them and intervene sooner is always better. Exactly. Um, oh, shoot. I, I had another thought, but it's gone. Okay. So if, if there's therapists who want to learn more about speech sound disorders, if there's families who are concerned about their kiddos' speech and intelligibility, what do you recommend resource-wise, um, education-wise out there for families and therapists? So- it's, it's amazing to me what Instagram has become for the SLP and family community. And I would say there are some really amazing accounts to follow. Um, you know, I, and I, I could list them all day long. I actually saved a highlight on my Instagram account as far as what accounts I recommend that parents and SLPs follow. Adventures in Speech Pathology, Rebecca Ranking, she's amazing. She's fantastic with phonology. She's somebody I would recommend. Carrie Ebert, Laura Smith, Jenny Bjorum are great for apraxia. There are just so, so many um, SLP accounts out there that are great to follow. And there are some fantastic online resources now too, as far as um, what can be very helpful for um, SLPs gaining that need more knowledge, that need more expertise when it comes to different types of speech sound disorders. There's Speech Therapy PD, there's MedBridge. Um, and I, I have links um, again to all of these on my on one of my CEU highlights on my Instagram uh, account page too. There, you know, they're free. Um, videos on YouTube, even from Dr. Edith Strand, if you want to learn more about childhood apraxia of speech, there's just so many resources out there that I feel like if you kind of do a little bit of digging and you find even a good Instagram account and you ask them like, okay, this is an SLP that knows what she's talking about. He, I always say she, I mean, there's what 98% of us, (laughs) even like we're women, but, uh, but, you know, find a good SLP and ask them like, who do you recommend? Um, And that's what I've been doing. People have asked me. So I, I, I tell them who I recommend and I save it so you can, people can go refer to it later. Absolutely. Awesome. And how about if people have questions for you specifically, um, you know, where can they find you on social media? We talked about your website earlier, but connect us with all those other places to find you. Yeah. I am probably most active on Instagram. Um, and my handle is Graham speech therapy and, but I have a Facebook account as well. I have a YouTube channel that I'm starting to post a little bit more on with just more informative videos. Um, so that's where you can find me. And all of those are linked. You can find all of my social media, um, linked on my uh, website, grahamspeechtherapy.com. Awesome. And you mentioned MedBridge just a minute ago. Um, Nicole and I, Nicole's my business partner. She's a EI physical therapist. We have courses on MedBridge as well. And we, yeah, we started with MedBridge when they were kind of in the early stages many years ago. And it's been amazing the variety of courses they now have to offer. 
Um, we've been working with them recently and developing more um, early intervention content for the, for their platform. But they are a great a great place to they go are. to find that's, courses. That's where I send people when they. Um, Dr. Lynn Williams has I think a, a couple of courses on there, and she's the one who pioneered multiple oppositions to treat phonological deficits. So you know it's it's a fantastic place to go. Yes, they have lots of good good yeah. courses to check out. Thank you, Amy, so much for your time and for your willingness to share your expertise. We really appreciate it. Happy to do it. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Thanks for joining us for another episode of More Than Child's Play podcast. Please follow us on Facebook, find us on Instagram at Milestones Miracles and on Twitter at Milestones M.